great to be back after visiting last year, and I uh, remembered meeting some of you, and for others it's the first time, so hello. I have uh, four children, and they range in ages from 12 to 19, and they're all different, has anyone noticed? Your parent, children, and they're not the same. And just when you think you're getting a handle on one, another one turns up with a completely different set of ideas about life. And I'm in a dad's taxi phase at the moment. So uh, running everywhere, took my daughter to an open day at a university yesterday, and then off to one of my other kids' basketball games. It's a fun time to be alive, but it's busy. And I appreciate your prayers. I think it's an important time for the whole church across Australia to be excited that when many would be disparaging of Christianity, that we can present the truth of the gospel, we can be unashamedly proud to be Christian, and we can showcase the love and the light of God in such positive ways. And I'm hoping that what I share with you this morning will uh, allude to some of that, will help you with some of that. And I want to uh, talk about maximising moments today. I wonder if, though, before I get into it, we could just bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for the privilege of sharing the gospel. I want to thank you for the privilege of leading. And uh, we thank you too, Lord, that many of us here today have got great and inspiring stories of your work in our lives, through our families. We thank you that you brought us here today to learn, to grow, to worship, to serve. And we pray that in all that we do as your church, it wouldn't just be confined to Sundays, but as we leave this place, there'd be a week of impact, of, uh, of, of impact on people, who would be able to not just be loved, but also hear the truth of the gospel from us at the right time. The Holy Spirit, you would lead through us, lead people to Jesus. And we pray that this place, as we, as we just uh, prayed before, that it would be overflowing, that it would be growing, that the capacity would expand, that there'd be people stepping up in leadership as well as in influence to say, I want to be God's man or woman for this hour. Lord, let it be. And I pray that as we look at your word today, you inspire us through it, that you drive it deep within us, so that it transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I wonder if you could turn your attention to the screen. If all the technology works, I want to show you, uh, I want to show you some photos. Because as we look today at the theme of maximising moments, I want to be mindful of the fact that we all have moments, moments of decision, moments of opportunity, moments of impact, and we can take advantage of them, we can learn from the ones we miss, the ones where we wish to have them over again, but some moments we never get back. When I take uh, photos, like uh, this one I took at a Christmas Carol's fireworks production, I have a few seconds, a moment in time to get the photo right. But, of course, if I don't, the fireworks show lasts for 10 minutes. I don't necessarily have every shot work out well, I just show you the best ones. In this case, just two. One from the Christmas Carol's fireworks and one from some New Eve fireworks, which are uh, from memory at the MCG, the family-friendly ones. They do so we can all get home because we don't care about midnight reveling. Maybe you do, maybe I'm just getting old. So with the moment that we have, we can perhaps have a second go, a third go. You get a draft crack at some things in life. And if you do get another opportunity, you can learn, you can redo. But sometimes, as I said, you get one chance, like when you photograph animals. Now, maybe I could wait for that butterfly to settle again and spread its wings out just right. 
But on the other hand, maybe that moment and that photo is as it was on that day, the only one I'm gonna get. Now I could be quite content with other photos and miss that opportunity and say, no, it's all right. We can impact people and yet with the positivity of our impact, sometimes miss the one or the two moments that were divinely orchestrated, that were God-inspired. And whilst we don't want to beat up on ourselves when we miss them, we do want to learn and grow for next time. I sometimes can't help in my humanity but wonder about the one, about the person that God put in my life that day, that he was going to put in my life today. Who's going to be in my life tomorrow? Yes, God can send somebody else. Sometimes he sends you and me. And so when we try and take photos, and you've got just a mere few seconds to get it right, the reward can be worth it when you have a moment of opportunity with somebody. And you're feeling like, no, I don't know if I've got the time. I don't know if I can do it. Maybe you do it and it's worth it because you grow, they benefit. I had to wait 15 minutes before this shot presented itself. Sometimes it does take time. There is a considerable investment. And this, right in my own backyard. Just a brief moment where I was hoping and praying that that dragonfly would stay still enough for me to go and get my camera. As soon as I took the shot, it was off. You never know, but that responding to the promptings of God to impact a person, yes, it might cost you. Yes, it might take your time. And yes, maybe if you overlook it, you miss it, you don't get it right, it could still be okay. God can still send somebody else. But I wonder, we, are we alert to the leading and guiding of his spirit so that we are more and more likely to maximise the moments, to make sure that in our service of God, we're being led by his spirit and not by our circumstances, our senses, about what we think is right, about what's comfortable for us. So a friend of mine died in a car crash and it devastated me not only because he was a friend of mine, but because I tried to share my Christian faith with him, he pushed me off very nicely. He was so confident, some might even say arrogant, that he seemed not to be interested. When he died, I realised I could have tried a bit harder. Now we can all beat up on ourselves and shoot. Yes, we can always pray more. We can always share the gospel with more people. We could always have done something differently. So I'm saying be careful not to do that, but at the same time, to respond to the little divine nudges that don't always ring loud and clear. They're just the little promptings where if we're being led by God, he's asking something of us because maybe the moment is now. Maybe it can't wait. Sometimes people do go under the proverbial bus. When God is saying at work, I want you to attend to this because he knows what you don't know. He's asking you to talk with your next door neighbour about faith because you've built the relationship. You've been a good listener. Now it's time to go the extra mile. Be attentive. The lady in the church that I was pastoring was very attentive when she had a car crash but survived just enough. She was your man to be entitled to be quite frustrated that her car was now going to be off the road. Somebody had inconvenienced her. What's worse, 
crashed her car with the smell of alcohol on his breath. She would have been forgiven for probably going to town, being a bit indignant, being upset at what had happened, protesting her rights, making sure that the insurance got the car fixed. Of course, that all happened. But her first priority was to respond to a prompting of God. She'd been praying the Lord would help make her a bolder evangelist. She said, it's not my natural gift. So I was feeling this increasing sense of responsibility to be a bit more courageous, to talk about Jesus to people. She says, I've got the nudge. We had a production coming up. It was a stage play about the book of Revelation, about responding to the gospel, ensuring your name is in the book of life, as it's called, to ensure that you're with God in eternity. And she had some invite cards and handed me one and said, I go to church. She said, we're putting on a play and I really think you need to come. She could see his response. He was quite emotional, quite taken. Probably understanding she had a right to be angry at him, her first priority was to be obedient to God and think about what he could do at the moment. She invited him and he came. The evangelist got up and spoke at the end of the service and compelled people to respond to Christ, to give their lives to him. Said, Jesus hung and bled on a cross for you. He was sinless but took your sin in him. And no matter how small, everything you've ever done that could separate you from God, everything done to you or by you, no more guilt, no more shame. It's taken by Christ. But eternity is a gift, he said. You've got to unwrap it for yourself. Would you respond? Several did, including this man. And he's weeping as he realises that he's been burying pain with alcohol. The pain of past abuse and all the sorts of things he never wanted to confront. And he was ultimately hoping to get his life on track and really looking forward to meeting a person who's going to follow him up two days later, an ex-alcoholic. Turned up on the door, noticed it was open, ventured inside, and saw the young man dead on the ground. The alcohol poisoning that had caught up with him, giving him his 11th hour chance to respond to Christ. That lady wouldn't have been responsible for his death or his eternal security had she not responded. We don't put that on ourselves. But what she did do was respond to a nudge from God. She was prepared to maximise her moments because it was about her growth and not just about what was happening for that young man. And as sad as the story was, the silver linings not only for him, but the rest of his family, who turned up to the second night of the production, the night before he died, committed their lives to Christ. And as they continued in the life of the church, and continued serving, it's chalk and cheese the before and after. Because when the work of transformation is not just belonging to a community of nice people, but it's about encountering Jesus who changes us from the inside out. And we realise that the power of God is real. There is an outwardness to the faith that others see. The love and the niceness that we want to display, our willingness to listen and communicate, of course that's reflective of what Christ has done in us. But Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. People are drawn to us. We've then got to lead them to Jesus. 
And I believe that many times we don't maximise moments. We have great moments of opportunity and we unfortunately let them slip by because we make them about what seems comfortable or right to us. We go to a certain point that matches our level of comfort and yet it's very difficult at times to go the extra mile, to go and respond to that extra match. God is wanting to take us further. And we might dismiss the gospel and say, well, I'm not an evangelist, that's for somebody else. I'm not the pastor, I'll bring them on Sunday. And of course you can do those things. But what about the people in your world? And the only version of Jesus they'll see is the one who you present. And the revelation of Christ, the one who can change their lives, is going to come through your mouth, through your good works real patience and persistence. With that in mind, as we consider some important choices that we all have, maybe some lost opportunities that we've had, like I've had, the fleeting moments that pass us by, and whether we maximise the moments, wants to get some help from a passage in the Old Testament, the story that's perhaps well known to some of us, of David and Bathsheba. King David who God had appointed after his great victory over Goliath. He'd grown up a bit. He's had all these tussles with an ungrateful and uh, a King Saul who was on a downward spiral. God took the kingship off him after a brief reign by Saul's son. David comes to the throne, becomes the king of all Israel and has everything he could want. And in a culture that condoned Multiple wives, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you view it. Some people might believe that many wives would be great. God has given us, in the New Testament church age, the priority of one husband, one wife, not multiple. And yet in the culture of the time, we need to understand that context is important. Just on this, before I go further with the story, God deals with people in different generations of time according to where they're at. He doesn't say to them, David, what do you think you're doing? Not multiple wives, one wife. He changed that by the time of the New Testament. Back in the Old Testament times, that was often the done thing. So God doesn't then go and impose something that people would resist. Another example, we might wonder in the Old Testament, why is there so much bloodshed? Why did God seem to condone killing? or even slavery. Not because it was right then, that's because of the culture in which people grow up. So what God would often do is advance the culture one step at a time, challenge them with one little nudge, and the response was stepwise. So David is allowed his multiple wives, and yet there's one particular woman that captures his fancy. Firstly, she's bathing naked on the roof and he's wandering out and looking. He shouldn't have even been looking. When he was, someone asked, well, why was he even there? Because all of his soldiers were out of battle. David was home and he should have been leading the troops. Again, not that we condone warfare, but that was the culture of the day. So David was not where he should have been. He succumbs to this temptation or lust to want a woman who is not his wife or one of his wives. She happens also to be married to somebody else. 
And so what does he do when he realises he's made her pregnant? He's got to cover his tracks. So he sends for the husband, Uriah, asks for him to come home, gives him a night with his wife, so that everyone will think nine months later that the child was just from mum and dad and that David had nothing to do with it. But Uriah is an honourable man. He says to the king, everyone else is out of battle. How could I possibly indulge myself with the night with my wife? And he sleeps on the doorstep of the home, won't even go inside. David realises if people know this, then I haven't covered my tracks. So he sends the orders for Uriah to be put out where the battle hits his fiercest so that he will be struck down and he dies. David is now an adulterer and a murderer. Now in the church age, though we have a very different culture, we tend to minimise sometimes things like adultery and murder, which are still sins. And whilst of course we want people to go to jail for appropriate offences, for example, I don't think too many of us would want to exonerate murderers. Nevertheless, we showcase so much love and grace that we sometimes downplay sin. And the problem with that can be that whilst it's good not to be judging and condemning people, that we can almost in our own minds have such a minimalist approach to wrongdoing that we forget that therein lies a great moment of opportunity not to condemn people, but to challenge them to get back on track with God. And so what we're going to do is look very quickly at how this story is structured and see that David is brought to his senses by a godly person who seizes a moment, and his name is Nathan. He's a prophet who is sent by God not to justify wrongdoing, not to minimise, not to say, oh, well, our culture is different, it's okay. But he also doesn't give David a hard time personally. He brings him to a confrontation in a loving way to see that it's God who's speaking. So, just to pick it up, the start of the story in chapter 11 and verse 1, where David is absent from battle, the time when kings go out where he should be, David's remained in Jerusalem. Then David has a son by virtue of the sin that he's committed with Bathsheba. <laughs> David tries to cover up his sin. And then we see, in the middle of the story, the start of chapter 12, Nathan the prophet confronts David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, he doesn't say it in a personally condemning way. It's also pretty direct. Do you know when you're talking to other Christians, sometimes whilst you can be nice to them, if we all serve the same God and read the same Bible, some people need loving confrontation about their wrongdoing. Sometimes it's okay, in fact necessary, to call a spade a spade and not to whitewash what the Bible calls sin. Just be very careful how you do it with people who don't even read the Bible. In fact, I wouldn't be going and condemning anybody who's not a Christian. I want them to encounter the love of God but here's the thing, every single person on this planet is born in a state of sin, whether they accept it or know it or not. We often talk about the faults of people like Israel Folau, who's condemning and finger-pointing and telling people that they're going to hell and saying, why does he do that? That's so unloving. 
Of course it's unloving when we single people out, when we finger point, when we condemn people who don't even read the Bible. But the truth of the Bible, for us who are Christians and read it, we know that multiple times throughout the book it actually says everybody falls short of God. Everybody is going to a Christless eternity unless they accept what's the good news that we want to bring to people. That Jesus Christ has died in our place, taken our sins in his body, conquered death and hell by rising from the dead, offering us the gift of eternal life that we would respond. And our task is not to condemn, it's to bring people to confrontation with Christ, to bring the good news. And in a kind of Old Testament sort of way, pre-Jesus, Nathan is lovingly confronting, and he's doing it directly. And he's bringing David to the place where he hears from God for himself. David admits his sin, but then nevertheless loses his son. And the loss of his son is devastating to him, as it would be for any parent. The son is a product of sin, and Nathan tells David he's going to lose his son as a consequence of his sin. Sounds like a really tough call. But again, Nathan as a prophet is talking about the judgment of God, and he does that in a selective way, in a set place and time, and it would not be normal practice for us to ever tell people about the consequences for wrongdoing. The thing is, we don't know whether someone's adversity in life has come from wrongdoing, or it's just the stuff that happens. It's not my place to go and unpack it and to tell people why misfortune happens. My job is to showcase Christ, bring people to him, and nurture them in the tough times. Love them without giving an explanation. Not my place to be hard on people, or to even presume to know why something has happened. But David, nevertheless, loses his son. We'll see in a moment how he rises quickly from his own misfortune. Finally, at the end of the story, late in chapter 12, we see David going back to battle, which is where he should always have been. He gathered the people and went to Rabbah, which literally means great, and he fought. And it's possible that the name of that place is symbolically indicating that the greatness of David is restored and he's going to where he should be. Where God leads him to be, not where someone tells him to go. If we look at these parts of the story, we notice that they're structured as pairs of thoughts that work their way toward the middle. David is absent from battle at the start of the story. David goes to battle at the end of the story. David has a son, David loses a son. David covers his sin, he admits his sin. The pairs of related thoughts point towards the middle of the story and the godly moment that comes as David is confronted. The confrontation here is the important lesson for us. That confronting people with, in our case, the good news of the gospel, the love of God, or sometimes people who are Christians with a friendly kick up the backside because they need us, Confrontation is about seizing moments in a godly way. How many of you have ever been confronted by someone who's pretty ungodly? Someone who's pretty unloving? Someone who thinks that they're perhaps representing God, 
but there's a harshness. It's not the sort of person you want to encourage to be at the forefront of your welcoming or greeting teams or hospitality uh, teams. Godliness comes, of course, from a relationship with God. When we read the Bible and God speaks to us, God is often speaking about the things in our world, speaking about the people we need to forgive, speaking about the change in our attitudes, speaking maybe about a harshness that can come. I know times I've had to go and ask my children for their forgiveness. When I've been too harsh, I could be dismissive of that. I could say, well, they left their toys on the ground when they were younger, and I tripped over them, and yes, I got angry, but I'm going to own my anger. That's my fault. Then leaving the toys on the floor is not their fault. They're just little children. So very quickly, it's not about what they're doing wrong. It's about what God's saying to me as I pray, as I own my attitudes. That shaking, that sanding of the rough edges comes as we read the Bible. The Bible is not just about learning facts of history, not just learning lessons for some time in the future. God wants to speak to us each day. And as he does, he often nudges and shapes us in regard to that outward focus. How it is that we talk to people to showcase his love, to draw them to him, and sometimes to bring confrontation in the right way. Can you think about it? When did you last confront a Christian person? Because you cared, you loved them, you built a relationship, but you just said, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Something I've noticed, something I've seen. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to give you a hard time. I'm by no means perfect. But I care too much not to have this conversation. When did you last take the time to speak to your neighbour and say, look, we've been chatting for some time about this problem with your family, but you know what, I'm a Christian. I'd really like to pray with you. Not for you, but with you. They can always say no. When's the last time? Did you talk to somebody at work about a problem they shared with you? And you said, I'd like to help you with that. You know, I'm a Christian, I believe in serving. I want to go out of my way to support you because I really care. I, I think, in fact, I'd like to pray. Is that okay? You know, if you're not allowed to do that at work, you still do it at lunchtime. You still do it after work. And at the very least, even if you can't say anything at all, because of whatever your workplace policies, you can pray at home. You can pray with all your might for people that God would bring divine inspiration, that God would bring change, that God would work for you. You know, if you play the Nathan role, and you do it the right way, you do it in love, but your seizing of a godly moment might not help people to necessarily admit sin as such. They mightn't put it in those words, but you can get people back on track with God. Many people want to leave that to a pastor or a leader. But it's the role of a Christian. Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples. He gave that mission to the church. We do it in different ways. Some people are certainly not ready to be invited to church yet. But we can all in our way help communicate, convey the love of God that moves from action and listening to works that serve, and ultimately to words that come out of our mouth and bring people to the place where they can be restored to a relationship with God and he's put them on his plan to find it. 
had a guy uh, come to see me after he had committed his life to Christ, sort of. He, he had this nudge that he, he uh, was really not doing okay. And he heard a sermon that I'd, I'd preach and said to me afterwards, I think I need to get my life sorted. He didn't articulate that he needed Jesus as such. But I thought, it seems a little bit all over the place. Well, as I pray with him now and see if he'll come and see me. And he did, a few days later. We're sitting down talking, and he says, I've really made a mess of my life. He says, I've cheated on my wife, and she's been incredibly gracious. Forgive me, we're trying to rebuild. He says, but I do damage all the time, and I know where it's coming from. He says, I haven't been a Christian because I've been burying my pain with alcohol. I've been drinking, never confronted the fact there was some abuse when I was a child that I could never talk to anyone about. Now the perpetrator's dead and I can't do anything about it. He felt trapped. He didn't know where to go, so he drank. And when he drank, he'd actually pay out on his wife when she's been nice to him. Although he was never physically violent, there was verbal abuse, mistreated his kids, speaking very harshly and unkindly to them. And it was just one problem after another. He was managing to hold a job down but he thought his marriage was just about all over. And he just said, I, I can't bear this anymore. I've been living this way for years. As I led him to a, a prayer, I thought I'd better talk to him a little bit about why I'm praying. And I was starting to kind of say, well, you know, I, I don't have your story. I said, but why I encountered Christ is because I recognised I couldn't do life by myself. I couldn't earn favour with God. And I said, you can't either. So the Bible says that all of us fall short of God and we need him. But you know, you've done nothing that bad that God can't accept you and welcome you and forgive you. He says, really? He says, I feel bad. I said, I know, but the Bible tells me that when we give our lives to Christ, there's no more condemnation. It's tremendously free. And Jesus said, who the Son sets free, is free indeed. You want to set me free of being shackled to alcohol because you've used that as a crutch. And Christ has come to make us a brand new creation, not just an improved version of the old self. As we prayed together, I led him in a prayer to commit his life to Christ. He backed right off the alcohol, started coming to church, and within weeks, walking into church, holding hands with his wife, he's a completely different person. He goes to church virtually every week. And the only last vestige of his old life that I wasn't able to shake was that he remained an Essendon supporter. <laughs> <coughs> anyway. The thing too is that uh, trouble often comes, as I said, because of our own choices. But sometimes it comes in spite of them. It's so important that we are interpreting and unpacking people's lives for them. But we don't go and presume because somebody had problems in their life that that was God's punishment because they never committed their lives to him. Please don't ever say things like that. When the adversity comes, don't even say, I know why you lost your child. I read it out when David lost his. So unhelpful. All right, but the fact is when adversity comes, there can be an opportunity when we seize moments to remind people that he, God, still cares in the tough times, that he is there. 
If people don't have that frame of reference, when adversity comes, what do they cling to? One of the saddest things has been taking funerals where the majority of people present are not Christians, the person who's died was not a Christian. You can see the hope that's missing in the eyes of the people. There's nothing to cling to. There's no certainty, no anchor points. And in the brief moment of vulnerability, people may or may not be open to thoughts about God, depending on their story and the pain that they've had in life. But you don't fix that with a little sermon at a funeral. You don't just fix that sometimes with even one conversation. You might, but often you need the time, you need the patience. You've got to persist with people. And if you are available in those moments of vulnerability and opportunity you have, it's incredible the impact you can have. Had a lady come to see me. And she had some pain in her life that had come from fracturing in the family. She'd uh, lost her marriage. and She was really all at sea. Just very hard to, um, to talk logically, fluently, and understandably so. She was in a bad way. So, I didn't make the mistake of talking a lot. I didn't preach a sermon. I just sat there and listened. And she said to me, while she was talking to me, I really appreciate that you can just sit there and listen to all this junk. She said, I know I'm probably rambling. I'm thinking, uh-huh. <laughs> and she says, and I know I'm probably not making sense. I thought, yeah, that's right. But she says, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Like I said before, listening is really good. It's a, it's a soothing medication for people in pain. But it's not ultimately enough. You just have to know that, yes, there is a time to talk, but now might not be it. She said, you know that saying when people are at the end of their rope? She says, I'm at the end of the last thread of my rope. And we read the Bible together, and she was so excited when she read the words of Psalm 91, that encouraged her, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High God, Abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And she's reading further, read at home, and she's so encouraged. And here's the kicker God spoke to her. God spoke to David. God spoke to the alcoholic whose marriage was just about over. And he might have used me to a point. He uses our listening, he uses our preaching at the right time, he uses our words, he uses our skills. He uses our special gifts that some of us have, and yet people ultimately don't need to hear from us. We're just a vehicle. They need to hear from God. People can't hear from God if you're not taking the time to be with them, if you're not listening, if you're ultimately not using your mouth to speak out the Word of God. Because unless they're going to turn to the Bible themselves, and many simply won't, then your absence of patience, your absence of maximising certain moments, can mean that something will ultimately be missing that's integrally important to them finding faith. And finally in the story, the fact that David goes back to battle when he could have stayed home and grieved the loss of his son, when he could have stayed home and said, I give up on God because God's let me down, he pretty quickly goes back to battle where he should be. There's something in his responsiveness to God 
that draws strength from him to be able to take the next steps. Had Nathan not been used to confront David, he wouldn't have inspired the next steps in spite of David's adversity. As you know, describing the pathway for people can be talking too much. When we listen and care and we say the right things at the right times, there comes a point where people need to take a next step and it's just one next step. That lady who had stopped coming to church, I felt like saying, running away from God is not your answer. You've pulled out of all serving teams. You used to sing so well, you were about to head up a drama team. Where did all that go? What, just because a few things went wrong? That's what I felt like saying. It would have done damage. And rather than beating up on somebody when they're struggling, we recognise that there's a path that's needed through the jungle. And the path is not unpacked in one conversation. The path is taken, it's ventured one step at a time. And the next one step for this woman was to read the Bible. Next time, the next one step for this woman was to pray about one of the things she was going through. The next one step after that was to come back to church without any pressure to be involved in anything, without any pressure to talk to anyone. In fact, I said it would be okay for her to leave 10 minutes early so she didn't have to face the crowds. And giving people confidence that the next step is okay, yes, you can do it. Encouragement that requires patience from us because we're not the one doing the journey. You know, for people to take next steps, some of them will do it quickly if they are in a good place with God, but not everyone is. So I draw to a close today. I want to look at another part of the story that I think will be helpful. Because if David has had an encounter with God previously, if he had a faith, he was able to get back on the journey with God rather quickly. Some other people can't. They need you to be there to lead them to Jesus. But when we are ourselves wanting to move with God, when we have a relationship with God, we're just wanting to be a bit more successful, we can get back on track really quickly. The next steps become a lot easier for us. So we see, for example, that David, he pleaded with God for the child, even though there was a prophecy that the child was going to die. David fasted and spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. You do what you can do. You don't do what you can't do, but you do what you can do with all your might when you want him to track with God. Let him worry about the rest. Is the child dead, he asked. When he found out that the child had died, it's then that he stops all his fasting and praying and everybody's quite puzzled. What's going on, David? He just picks himself up, dusts himself on, and gets on with life. And David says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept and thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? This is not the perspective of a person far from God. It's the perspective of a person who's been brought close to God, who's developing a mature faith, a responsive faith that says, as I walk with God, I've got to know what the next step is. I've got to know what's the God moments, the leadership moments in my world now. What does success require of me today? And it might be different tomorrow. So in verse 16, when he's pleading and praying, 
we see that David is able in going to God to have strength to respond in the times of hardship. Nathan seizing the divine moment has allowed this to happen. David now has a divine moment of his own. Your divine moment today could be the pressing to God to read the Bible, to pray, to find God speaking to you about today, tomorrow and the next day to give you strength to respond in your times of hardship. And when he asks, is the child dead? He doesn't run away from death. He doesn't fail to ask the question. And he doesn't deny the reality. Verse 19 in this story speaks to us of courage to face the reality of tough circumstances. I've known many people who would presume to be mature Christians and simply can't face the reality of their life as it stands at the moment. Having courage to face the reality of our circumstances means being honest. When God confronts something, don't pretend it's okay. Don't figure it out by yourself. Go and open up. Talk to somebody. Get some help. There's a great test of maturity is whether we're prepared to be honest about the fact that for none of us is life going perfectly. And for all of us, we need others to help us. Open up to the right people, the right time, in the right way, and allow God to work through them. And so at the end of this story, as David's able to bounce back quickly, as he's able to go back to battle, we see that there's resilience to move forward despite adversity. Just uh, a final story. C.T. Studd, famous missionary that some of you may have heard of. He went to China, he went to Africa. But before that, he was a famous cricketer. At the moment, there's an Ashes series on. The Legend of the Ashes was actually born when uh, five years after the first test played at the MCG, there was a return bout over in London. And the final two Englishmen are at the crease and 10 runs to win. And a lowly tail ender makes two runs, hogs the strike, goes out, and they ask him, we've just lost to the Australians, why did you not trust the more experienced batsman at the other end? This is because I couldn't trust him. Ironic that this man who's uttered those words died at 45, an alcoholic. The person at the other end is one of the most famous missionaries, made such an impact in developing countries. You couldn't trust him. You see, C.T. Studd, though, at the time, was obsessed with cricket. But he realised just a year or two later that that wasn't what he needed. What he needed was not to be successful at cricket. He was an internationally renowned player. He had thousands of pounds of inheritance money. All intents and purposes, he would have seemed successful. But he had his own divine moments. His brother fell ill. Thought his brother might die. And he was suddenly desperate and realises, I've given my life to what I want, to what seemed good. And yet I'm supposed to be a Christian and here I am seeking God for my brother's healing and I haven't been serving him. And the moment of conviction comes as he listens to the most famous preacher of the 19th century, D.L. Moody. And Moody convinces him he's going to get his life on track with God. He repents of his cricketing years and fortune as he's backslidden times, gives all his money away and joins the Cambridge Seven who went to China as missionaries 
And later when he came back home to England, he could have been entitled for thinking he'd done enough. He spent the rest of his years in Africa because he heard that there were people who would not yet encountered Christ. The moment of impact for you might be now as you hear today. The moment of impact for you might be to say, I've got to make a difference in the lives of people out there who are going to a Christless eternity and I've just been focused on my own world, my own issues, my own problems. Maybe won't this be a Nathan moment for some of us here? But like David, we rebound quickly. We go on the front foot, not in arrogance, but in love, to make a difference in our world. Because there is no cause greater than that of serving Christ. You might not be called like Stud to give away all his money to travel to a developing nation. But maybe there's something you can do today. I wonder if you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer. I wonder if you would just seek God about the moment of impact that he's calling you to right now. Would it be to return to the place of passionate prayer? Could it be to just spend that little bit more time with some people in your world who need Christ? Could it be that there are people who need you this week to pause and reflect and say, God, I don't know what to do here. But as I trust you, Pray that you fill my mouth with wisdom. Help me to know what to say and help me to know when not to say anything at all. Maybe there are people here this week who need you to listen to them. Maybe for your divine moment today, you need to be willing to do something about that addiction, that problem, even that pain in your body. And so I'm going to trust that somebody will say, pray for me and dare to believe God will heal me. And I believe that God will make it all right today. It's going to need a next step from you. And I'm not here to unpack your pathway. I'm here to invite you to the next step. Father, we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that today we inspire all these people here, Lord, as they leave this place, to be passionate followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you that you hung and bled on that cross. You died for us 2,000 years ago, that we could be set free. Thank you, Lord, that who you have set free is free indeed. And we thank you for the freedom that allows us not to simply abuse us on living selfishly, but to use it responsibly to make a difference in the lives of others. Pray for those here who are struggling with addiction, who are struggling with physical pain in their bodies, who are struggling with relationship difficulties, financial problems. Lord, we pray that this divine moment would drive each person to the place of prayer, crying out to you and believing that you are the one who was not only healed and transformed in the past, but you want to do it again. Lord, for anyone here in the sound of my voice who has not yet committed their lives to following you, I pray this would be a moment of decision, of crossing the line and accepting you as Saviour and Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.